I believe that when my country calls for me, that I should answer. And the uh, oath that I took is perpetual. It never ends. And I believe that I'm patriotic enough that today, if something happened, broke out, and I, you would give me the M1 I had, I would stand and fire it until I fell. That's the way I feel about my country. I love my country. Everybody remembers World War II. Everybody remembers Vietnam. Everybody remembers so many wars in which Americans have fought. Except for one. It's called the Forgotten War. That would be the Korean War, which began on June 25th 1950, and it is my true honor to be joined by two American veterans of the Korean War, Dale Winston Riggs and G.W. Brown. Mr. Brown, Mr. Riggs, thank you so much for, for making the trek all the way to the studio and joining us on what is the <laughs> 72nd anniversary of the war. Never knew we'd make Hollywood, did you? <laughs> <laughs> it is so wonderful to, to have you both here. Uh, to, we've got... Uh, Dale, I believe that's your Purple Heart from, from the war over there. Uh, because people do not really remember this conflict, and there are maybe lots of reasons as to why it, it, people don't remember that conflict, could you just begin by maybe telling us what the Korean War was for people who fought it, saw it firsthand? In the beginning of the war, when uh, I was shipped to Korea, uh, they neither had clothing that was adequate uh, to keep you warm. They didn't have uh, insulated boots and thick socks to keep you warm. A lot of, uh, uh, of our people lost the tips of their nose, the bottom parts of their ears, their parts of their fingers from being frozen. That's something that is, uh, never was published the American people never knew about that. And it was way on up into 1950 before they received adequate clothing. And of course, uh, that was naturally uh, broadcast by the Stars and Stripes. So uh, the beginning of the war was uh, kind of tough because we were not uh, equipped, or we were not uh, knowledgeable of the uh, of the extreme cold. It was it was uh, not unusual to be 30 below zero in the mountains, and that was uh, the outfit that I was in. Uh, we had to uh, go into the mountain range and stay in the mountain range. And then you had those in the valley, and then you had those in the mountain range on this side. Uh, we stayed in the mountains, and I stayed in the mountains 10 months. Within that 10 months, uh, I myself and my comrades that were in the mountain range, we received clean clothes twice 
in 10 months. <laughs> and they set up a huge um, uh, uh, tent to have uh, baths where we could take a bath and get new underwear and new clothes and go on our way. And just general things like that that the general public uh, didn't know anything about and perhaps didn't care, I really don't know. But the, the, the Korean War was a miserable war. Everyone that you will talk to will tell you that it was extremely cold and, and it was really hard to uh, stay in those mountains. And I soon learned that the only way that I could save my feet is that I would, when I came to a stream, I would wash my socks out, put them around my waist and dry them. And where I would have clean socks because you sweat climbing those mountains and things like that. We come off land and, and, and about three miles back, they had a tent set up and we could go and take a shower outside. <laughs> it was probably below zero. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> you ever run through a shower? <laughs> Not below zero. Yes. <laughs> then we run through the shower and then grab some big piles of clothes. You just started grabbing anything that you could put on and put on. Yeah. The only, uh, the only uniform, or the only, yeah, the uniform I got was when we R and R Japan. They give us, they really tailored us to make so we didn't look like a bunch of bums. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you that we're living. <laughs> R and R and R Japan. I'm telling you that like going to heaven. The, the way you're describing the, the sheer physical misery of, of this war, you know, not adequately uh, outfitted, you were both extremely young men at the time. Yes. Uh, 17. 17. Could you even enlist at 17? Yeah. Wow. I, I, I would assume it would be 18 or something. No, 17. My, 17. My, wow. Uh, father's, father and mother had to sign so I could get into 17. Mm. Six of us all enlisted in the service, six of my brother, me and my brother, six, at 17, we all enlisted at 17. What, what impelled you to do it? Was it just a patriotic call? Was it a desire to go see the mountains of Korea? <laughs> just to get out of the hometown. I'll put it this way. The first time I had your own bed, sleep all alone, your own clothes, three hot meals a day, if you were lucky. <laughs> If you can eat them, yeah. And then I got sent down to court. And then for after basic, I was sent down to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and that is, I'll put it this way, Korea was uh, a lot better than South Columbia, South Carolina. <laughs> they hated us. Let me tell you, in 1950, them rebels hated us with a passion. They hated the the Northerners. They hated all of us Yankees. They, yeah. <laughs> when we went into town, there was only one restaurant or bar that we could go in. It'd be, it'd be down by the railroad station that served the servicemen. The rest of them, we weren't allowed in. Believe wow. it or not. That's amazing to think you got a, a warmer reception in Korea than, <laughs> than you would have oh, in, in the southern states. Well, you know, the, Japan, the Japanese really liked us. Hmm. 
the Japanese people really liked us. Of course, the American soldier, when we got there from 45, Jesus, Japan was starving to death. You know, they had nothing. Korea was the same way. And uh, the American servicemen supported that country and brought these people up. Well, because, I mean, this is important historical context. You've got the Second World War ending in 45. Japan has been devastated. Yes. Shortly thereafter, you've got people starving. You've got people eating out of trash cans in Japan. And I guess part of my confusion with the Korean War is this is a major conflict. I think it's something like 1.8 million Americans serve in Korea at, at the, during those three years of the war, or f four years of the war, I guess. Uh, you've got 37,000 deaths of American servicemen. It's not really talked about very much. And you think, the United States has just won the Second World War. We're now the dominant superpower in the world. We're about to become the richest nation ever. Why couldn't the American government get you guys uniforms? <laughs> why, why couldn't the American government uh, spend a little bit more money on this conflict? Well, it was still being rebuilt. The country is still being rebuilt. Hmm. And the military, still today, the military is reached second. We got to take care of the politicians first yeah. in the military, believe it or not. Them greedy bastards in Washington living high off the hog on your and my money. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. Well, I was in Europe two years before the war broke out. Um, and, you, and you asked the question, what prompted us to uh, go to go to the war? Uh, I was very emotional and I, when I took the oath to defend uh, our enemies, both uh, foreign and domestic, and to defend the Constitution of the United States. And to me, that, that oath was perpetual. And uh, I don't want to sound like some unsung hero, but I would not hesitate to stand today with a rifle and fire until I fall, simply because I believe the oath was right and it's never ending. Me being in the Army two years before the war broke out, they sucked all the people out of Germany. That's where I was. And they just put us back here. And I was here, I think, three, four, five months, and then I went to Korea in the latter part of 1950, and then I was sent home in the latter part of 1960 uh, because they had begun to talk uh, peace. Uh, I may have made a mistake here. In 1951, I was talking, I made a mistake yep. about it. But anyway, that is the... Uh, uh, that is the reason that I was in the Korean War, and uh, we encountered many things that the public never heard about. The, uh, the ignorance in many of the officers that we had knew nothing about fighting a war, mm. and they got a lot of people unnecessarily killed mm. because they failed to... Uh, have the proper training or to use the proper weapon. Uh, I was, uh, I went up in rank fast. I'm a sergeant first class, which would be an E7. And I was ordered to take out a machine gun nest. 
when we had a bazooka laying on the ground here, and one round from a bazooka, there would be no more. But instead, I lost half of my men knocking out a machine gun dust, and I lost my medic. He's a medic. I lost my medic. And they brought him out and, and, and laid him up like, stacked him up like, like you would a, a row of, uh, of logs or something. And, and, and very, very, very heartbreaking. In that process of knocking out the machine gun is when I was hit with a concussion Japanese, uh, uh, Chinese grenade. And I was uh, unconscious for between 13 and 18 hours that I, I, was, I woke up in a field hospital. Uh, just things like that that has never reached Pentagon or wherever it's supposed to be of the ignorance of some of the officers. And since that time, of course, over a period of 60 years, I had to, I finally had to go get counseling because uh, the, the uh, uh, how should I say it, the the PTSD had begun to come out in a bad way. So I just, so I went four months of counseling and had a very good counselor and was helped uh, tremendously how to process what had gone on without being hostile about it and things of that nature. Did, did the, the PTSD present itself consistently after you got home from the war, or was it something it that... Was con it, was cons it was consistently, and I felt that, uh, that I was too macho to uh, ask for help. We have got thousands of the people out there that are homeless, that are in shelters, that are in nursing homes and things like that, and, and they're suffering greatly from PTSD, and there's help for them. They have a specific program for that in the VA hospital that that ward is dedicated specifically for the um, PTSD. When you're talking about one, just one of these incidents, you know, they could have used the bazooka and it would have, it would have saved half the men. Is, do you think that that decision just owes to the incompetence of the officers or a, a lack of training on the part of the political leaders? Or I would hate to think that someone would intentionally try to take lives, so I would have to opt for the lack of training. Because the, there were questions, you know, in, uh, in terms of the politics of the Korean War. I, I've always wondered if part of the reason we don't talk about it as much is because of the political controversies. That's the, the war begins under Truman, then it shifts to Dwight Eisenhower. Yes. Before Truman leaves, he infamously or famously fires General MacArthur. What is your take, having actually been there, on, on what the, the politics meant for the war? Would you say it was a mistake to, to fire MacArthur? Biggest mistake in history. Mm. Truman, Truman, uh, didn't come right out and say, but Truman admitted it on the sly. 
That, and he, of course, he, he fired MacArthur strictly on that bunch of chair warmers that he had in Washington. How do you think the war might have turned out differently had MacArthur remained in command? He didn't want a truce. He wanted, you either win the war or you... He made some mistakes by, he, he, he just went up the valleys and he bypassed all the Chinese and North Koreans in the woods and they closed in behind him. So we had to fight our way all the way back across the 38th parallel because we were in their territory. We went all the way to the Yellow River. This is, this was known by many people, but it was not broadcast. Now, I used to live next door to Colonel Brown, which was the chief of staff at at the White House. Uh, and, And he told me that MacArthur had ordered four nuclear warheads for China, that he ordered one for Manchuria, and they had one for North Korea, and and they was in the plane. And that's why uh, Truman fired him, because Truman made an oath and after dropping the bomb on, on, in Japan in World War II, he made an oath that as long as he was, had anything to do with, there would never be another nuclear warhead used. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that is how close it come from the war being ended in 30 minutes instead of dragging out four or five years. Because the, the way that the war worked is at, after the Second World War, Korea had been uh, basically a colony of Japan. So all of a sudden now, Korea is open, Japan's been defeated, and the Soviets and the Americans basically divided up. And the communists have influence in North Korea, the Americans have influence in South Korea, along the 38th parallel. So the war begins with that divide on the 38th parallel. And after all these years of fighting, after 37,000 Americans die, after 1.8 million Americans serve, the war ends on the 38th parallel. It ends exactly in the same place. Yeah. They have people on this side with guns pointed that way, people on the other side with guns pointed this way. Now, uh, I, I don't want to, I'm not a political person. Uh, I, I don't know what Mr. Uh, Trump and the fat boy did, excuse the language. <laughs> I think that's his official title, is uh, Kim Jong-un, the fat boy. Right. So I don't know what they talked about. I don't know what they accomplished, but apparently not very much because he's still rattling his sabers. Now, to me, if you give him a little money, he'll be quiet. Hmm. That, that's what he's after. But uh, for him to, uh, uh, to be a North Korean and look at how his people is treated and look at how his country is just generally nothing, and everything that he has has gone to uh, war equipment, and they say he's got a three million man army, okay? A thousand of them are ladies. Okay, what are you gonna do if you've got three million people on the ground ready to fight, and here comes the airplanes? 
So it, 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 his three million people means absolutely zero yeah. as far as being a threat to anyone else. That's my opinion. Now, the old dad was a little bit uh, different. He would rather say, but you give him money, it'd be quiet. But that's, that, that's a political thing. Well, and and you, you raise this interesting point, too, which is North Korea has a nuclear weapon. Now, I don't know how effective their nuclear weapons are. Uh, Donald Trump had that great line. He said, uh, I have a nuclear button, too, and mine works. Uh, so, but, but nevertheless, North Korea has that nuclear weapon. So in your opinion, having been on, on the ground there fighting, would, would it have been better for the war and for the country and for the world had perhaps the United States used a nuclear weapon or had MacArthur been permitted to go further beyond the 38th parallel, maybe into China? Do, do you think a more aggressive stance in the war would have would have put the world in a better position? Well, I consider myself a Christian gentleman, a Southern Christian gentleman, and I have my philosophies about war. If, if, if I have a country and it is thriving and I'm the head of that country, and you come at me, you come at me at your risk. Uh, I don't believe in war. I don't think there should ever be another war. I think we ought to negotiate it out some way or another, not ever have another war, but that's not possible. I think that we'll have other wars, and I think probably in short order. Uh, that's my opinion again. But uh, if you're going to win a war, you've got to go to war. Yeah. That's why they fired MacArthur. He wanted to win. Yeah. Washington didn't want that. Washington was making money. These big rigs were making money on us fighting in Korea. They were making big money. And they're still making big money on our kids today. So you're, you're saying the incentive would have been just to prolong a kind of stalemate rather than to actually go in and win the war? That war wouldn't have lasted three months if they'd let us. <laughs> So the war goes on and on, and it ends almost exactly as it begins, right there on the 38th parallel. Why do you think it earned this deserved title, the Forgotten War? Why do you think people talk about World War II, they talk about Vietnam, and for, for whatever reason, Korea is this blank spot in our history? Uh, it was too close to World War II. People were just getting over the effects of World War II, and then Korea showed up. And it was a country, country that they never heard of, the people we never knew. Suddenly we were there. Today, the only people that really appreciate what we did in Korea is the, the old South Korean people. Mm. You know, I remember in Washington and uh, all of our honor flights and everything, I meet the older Koreans and uh, Christ, they're hugging and kissing on you. You know, today, these, you know, it's hard to say, but the American people, a soldier walking down the street today, the people almost telling him and soldiers, sailors, and dogs keep off the lawn. That's the American people today. Whereas the uh, South Koreans, certainly of uh, oh, 70 years ago, you know, gods among men. Still today, South Korea, uh, 
still thinks the American soldier is God. You can't believe the conditions of the, of the people of South Korea uh, when we went there. They had zero, zero sanitary facilities. They went on the ground or wherever and used human waste for fertilizer. They, they, were, they were a very primitive people when, when we went there. The housing would be a, a, a sort of a, of a teepee like an Indian with coke, coke in there for a heater. And they would stoke just enough for a heater. And what kept them from freezing death, I have no idea. Because it is so extremely cold over there. But I want to mention one of the delightful things about the South Koreans. They're here now, and, and, and not in big numbers, but they're here and they're in business. And they're the most skilled people that you ever want to deal with. In the building industry that I was in for 58 years, I know about quality, and they are quality people. That's one of the delightful, delightful things. But if, you, but if you go back, if you go back to Korea and, and you, you get a picture of South Korea then and get a picture of South Korea today, I have a book, A Nation Reborn, South Korea looks to me like Hong Kong. Yep. Super highways, big, huge, tall office buildings, uh, neon lights. I don't know why Asia goes for so much neon lights, but they <laughs> love those neon lights. And, 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 and the nation has been reborn because they was willing to work and they was willing to take the money that the U.S. gave them and various other countries, I'm sure, had chipped in and rebuild their country. Contrary to North Korea, it is still devastated. There's no roads, nothing, nothing unusual to see a hundred vehicles one day on a gravel, on a dirt road, not even having gravel, on a dirt road. So uh, it, it's, it's an entirely different Two countries now. Now, the, the American involvement in Korea was obviously great for Korea, as you're describing. That's the reason South Korea exists as we know it today. What about the counter-historical of if the United States just didn't get involved in Korea? You know, it was, it was part of the strategy of containment. They wanted to contain communism from spreading around the world. What would have happened had we just not gotten involved? Well, it had been a communist nation. Oh, it, 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 it had been a communist. Put it this way: the picture of North, picture of Korea, and if you really want to know, see Korea, take, take, look at a picture of Korea at night. South Korea is nothing but lights. North Korea is light, light, light. Yep. Six or eight places, lights. Their people are still the most backward people in the world, yeah. and they're not being brought up ahead because. The military dictatorship don't want them. They don't want them to know what's going on and what's good for them and what's. You know. 
Well, they, got, they got them right in the palm of their hand and they're holding them down. So it is. South Korea is free strictly due to the American intervention. And that's probably the only country in the world who thinks the American soldier is the greatest thing, a gift to God. You, you had mentioned earlier that uh, now in large parts of America, you know, soldiers, sailors, and dogs get off the lawn. You know, there's well, a lot of- come from World War II, it's Columbia, that's South Carolina. Yeah. Well, I, why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think we're at a spot in America now where servicemen are, are not respected? Well, I'll put it this way. The minute the bullets stop, forget it. Yeah. Politics take over. Mm. And you gotta remember, these boys in Washington and girls, they're, per they're feathering their own nest first. Mm. Well, in my, I've never been disrespected. Mm. Not, not in, in that once in my life. I don't know whether it's because I'm big and ugly or they was afraid to or <laughs> what, but nevertheless, I've never been disrespected. Many, many times, and even now, people will pick up my lunch. I don't have a clue who they are. I can't thank them because I don't know who they are. The, the Korean War, and I, I really don't know how to put this together other than to tell you that the Korean War was a political war. Strictly and, political. And, and am I right? Strictly it was political. A political war, and 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 uh, there was a lot of money put in Korea by the U.S. Very few people helped, huh. and 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 then by being the political war as it was, China saw the opportunity that they could send thousands and thousands of troops in there, and they could overpower us, and then they could capture both Koreas. Mm -hmm and they would have another communist nation. But we were a little bit tougher than they thought, they were, they thought we were, and they couldn't get rid of us. So then after Chinese losing way, way younger, bigger number than we did, they decided that they would pull back and take another look, and that's when they began to talk about uh, ceasefire. Now, that's all they ever had is a ceasefire. The Korean War, as far as I know, has never ended right. because there's never been a surrender. So anyone that served in the Korean War from 70 years ago today is a veteran. Yeah. Is a Korean veteran. Huh. That's right, because a, 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 at the least- The war is still there. That's right, at least officially the war is still going on. Okay. And, and in those, those three years, you know, of the, of before the, the armistice, the, the, the war was really a proxy war, right, between the United States and China and the Soviet Union. So you, you had American soldiers fighting against the Chinese and fighting against Russians, at least Russians who were in covert operations. Yeah. So this could have been, you know, in, in these early years of the Cold War, this could have been... Well, led to a direct conflict between the U.S. and... It's a known Soviet. fact, that if, if the Air Force will tell you the truth, it's a known fact that uh, our fighter planes, fighting their fighter planes, they weren't talking Chinese, they were talking Russian. Yeah. So you had, because for, for the Cold War, 
the, the official story is that the U.S. And, and Russia never got into a direct conflict with one another. But in Korea, you had Russian pilots fighting at our pilots, or shooting at our pilots, rather. And we had Russian, Russian generals. One of them was captured, and uh, uh, one Russian general was captured there in, their, in their retreat. Well, they tried out, they hushed that up. Now, now, what do you make of what that means for today? I mean, in the last few years, the, the way that we've talked about Russia, it seems as though the Cold War never ended. Russia rose and fell and fell. Communist, the communist nation fell in Russia. And now uh, uh, you have a, a, a man there that is spewing out threatenings of uh, nuclear war and things like that. Uh, in, in my opinion, there's probably very few people have any clue as to what you're talking about when you drop a nuclear warhead. I mean, it, it's not a firecracker. Yeah. This man talking about doing, it, it's, it's, well, it, it's just stupid. It's stupid. But he is bringing... I think part of the Communist Party, as, as, as what you call staff, and they're keeping that alive. But that doesn't have anything to do with Korea, but that was the, the aim behind them being involved in the Korean War was to capture both Koreas and make them a communist country. When you say it was a political war, what, what exactly do you mean by that? It, it would be hard for me to explain. I, I think, number one, that uh, Mr. Truman should not have gone on over there in the first place. That's my opinion. I felt he would think, I think he was obligated because uh, Korea stated, uh, South Korea stated they was a free nation and that he did not want com communists to spread, which is political. Right. And, and, uh, and then when, when the Korean War began to wane a little bit and then Mr. Eisenhower come aboard, then he saw a way to stop it almost immediately. Now, it doesn't mean that after he got a ceasefire, ceasefire, they didn't quit. Huh. There was many, many guerrillas that came in and fired on our troops and things like that. Uh, uh, and, and, and that happened many, many times after the ceasefire had been agreed on. But Mr. Eisenhower, uh, found a way to get rid of that and get that calmed down and get that settled in the Korean War, then it's forgotten. Would you uh, agree with that assessment? Well, Churchill led him right around by the nose. Huh. He led him around in World War II by the nose and he led him in Korea. The, the poor old veteran, and I'm not, I'm not having a pity party, and I don't want to have a pity party, the poor veteran, he carried the pack on his back and he gave everything that he had to end that war. 
he's entitled to the, first, to the same respect as World War II or World War I or any of the wars. It's the same kind of fighting. It's the, we use the same bullets. We use the same rifles. And the same, the same boys bled and died, which is, which is a bigger shame than we ought to be able to stand. Four wars, one, two, Korea and Vietnam. The military done the best they, they could do to win the war, and the politicians right. done the best they could do to lose it for us. That's right. right. Uh, you know, in terms of that political shift, was it a... Was it an improvement for the war when Truman was out of there and, and Eisenhower got in? Was it, was it not as marked? Was it, yeah. Yeah. I liked Mr. Truman. Yeah. I, I, I served under him in Europe, and then I turned around and served under him in Korea. So I served, served under him under two continents. And I liked him. I thought he was a great guy. Yeah. But he was, he was a great farmer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew how to grow uh, things. He knew how to hold on to property. And, and he didn't have a whole lot when he went out of the White House. No. When Truman left the White House, you know how much he was getting a year to be, for his uh, living on? 26000 Wow. Truman didn't leave the, the White House rich. He was very, he was a hard worker, very poor. I read somewhere that he, he actually drove himself away from the White House, got in a car and drove back to Missouri. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, the thing of it is... And, and See, the bad feature, the military didn't own Truman. Hmm. They owned Eisenhower right from the shoes to the top of his head. They owned him. Hmm. They didn't own Truman. He told them exactly. When he said the buck stops here, he meant it. The buck stops here. If I say yes, we go. If I say no, we don't. Eisenhower let her own by the nose. I, uh, put it this way. I have no uh, great affection for Eisenhower. Hmm. Well, I had the occasion to shake hands twice with Eisenhower, one on one continent and one on the other. <laughs> but uh, he wow. was, yeah, he, he, was, he was an everyday guy. And, and, and a lot of things went on that he wrote and he did he actually put into operation back before Truman, back before Truman ever come in office, he was influential in, in, in some very important things. Yeah, he was uh, the chief, you know, the chief of staff of the army. Eisenhower was in with all of them people before he got into a combat situations. So he was strictly a, a political general. One of the things that you look at the generals and, 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 and the high-ranking officers, okay, when the war is over, they're over. Hmm. So Eisenhower spent a lot of his years at Panama Canal doing odd jobs of, uh, of people that you would think that a sergeant should be doing. But nevertheless, he, he, he spent his time doing that. And then when the war comes on, he's important. Yeah. Huh. He's very important. General of, the Army, General of the Army is the highest ranking of the nation. Hmm. He, he's the head on show. 
Right. There's a... Yeah, well, what was the line from MacArthur? Uh, 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 Marines don't die, they just fade away, or what was the soldier? Old soldier never die. Yeah, you're right. Just fade away. He's right. MacArthur was a... I can't... How how would you pronounce it? He was probably... MacArthur was a genius. Without a doubt, he was a military genius. Hmm. And I only wish we had somebody like him today. There's no ladies around. No. Yeah. There is, okay. I was going to tell a story, but I won't do that. Oh, please, uh, we, we can have them close their ears in mixed company. Well, when we went into Korea, and we just went up the valley to the Yellow River, all the enemies out in the woods on the side, I guess, laughing at us yeah. as we were doing that. When we got to the Yellow River, the Manchurians on the other side was mixed with the Kirill, firing back at us and bullets knocking up in the mud. And he was just standing there looking and, and, and the radio crackled, always because you already had a, always have a radio man beside of him. Matter of fact, you have a backup yeah. beside of him. And they wanted to report as the, uh, uh, the condition of the war. And they said, well, we are at, uh, at the Yellow River and we haven't had any activity. They said, well, give us the number of casualties. He said, we don't, have it. we don't have any casualties. Every swing and dick is here. <laughs> and by that, our, our battalion, yeah. they nicknamed them. Right. The, the swing and dicks. Yes. That, <laughs> but it was never, of course, it was never put in the paper, but that's what we were called. That is the best nickname I have ever heard. <laughs> that is really, really, that's something to be proud of. <laughs> But then it was amazing when you turn around from where you had just come from and you turn around and you've got several miles of North Korean territory that you've covered. (laughs) And you've got to fight all the way back to the 38th parallel to get to where you're supposed to be. And that's where we lost, we lost a lot of men that time. You see, the 38th parallel covers the entire across the country, yep. dividing South Korea, North Korea. And that's where most of my time was spent um, below the 38th parallel. And, of course, keeping the North Koreans and the Chinese and stuff like that from crossing that parallel. That was what our job was. So I was spread back in the mountains. We had some over here spread back in the mountains. And then we had people down here with tanks and airplanes. You can't take, you can't take those in the mountains. Right. No vehicles in the mountains. I mean, nothing. You, if, if we climbed, I, we climbed where I think it would be hard for a squirrel to climb. <laughs> do, do you think that the terrain was? The terrain was so, terrain. so rough. Yeah. So rough, and, and uh, all of our equipment was carried on our back. It ain't like Vietnam. The trucks, all our, the trucks come here, and for the next eight, ten miles, it was right on our back. 
You carried everything here, your, your food, your weapons, your ammo. And then we were lucky we had the Chohis, the old Korean, uh, the old Korean men that come on their own and started carrying all their supplies up to us. They would just sort of volunteer to help the army? We're talking men, some of these guys were our age. Huh. They were young men, they were all old men and they were all volunteers to come. When, when I was a young man and just into the Korean War, uh, I, I think I was corporal at that time, uh, we were sent out on a, on a, a um, on patrol to uh, make contact with the enemy. And when we made contact, then we turned around and went back to our outfit. So I had eight men, and we made contact closer than we wanted to be because we didn't see them in time, and fortunately, they didn't see us. So I had a, another young man, his name was Brown, and he, uh, he froze. He froze, just couldn't move. He couldn't function at all. Just out, out of shock? And out of shock. Of, yeah. mm-hmm. And so I put him across my shoulder and carried him about two miles. And uh, he, it was several hours before that he could even any kind of function. It's, it's very hard for me as a civilian to even imagine that, that you could be so struck in, in shock at seeing the enemy that you, you have to be thrown over a shoulder and carried out two miles. It happens miles. many times. It happens many times. Uh, and, and two, you talk about you don't get very much hot food in combat, most of those rations. Occasionally, the cooks and fish fixed you a hot meal, and when they, when they do, it's appreciated. Well, they had pancakes and eggs and bacon when the guy got by. The best I ever eaten in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. I remember my first meal back. Oh, Jesus Christ. Today, these kids, they wouldn't even attempt to eat it, what we were eating. <laughs> it was not the uh, fanciest, most elaborate meal, I imagine. No. But after looking, me, I, I've been, I've traveled all over the United States and several foreign countries. And the people that I have met and talked to about the, the Korean War, I have yet to find one to criticize the military people that was in that war. Hmm. I find it that, that, that I believe I have already said that I, I, I have been respected greatly. Mm. And, 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 and people walk up to me and thank me for uh, my service. That means a whole lot. Yeah. Because they don't, I mean, these are people that weren't even born then. And, 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 and for them to be mindful of that is really, uh, Heartwarming. The country hadn't completely rebuilt itself after World War II. Remember, five years, and it was still rebuilding itself. Then suddenly we're into another, as they call it, conflict. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They couldn't call it a war because no, there was no. no official declaration of war. Uh, it was a conflict. One, one newsman was talking. He says a conflict. I said, just a minute. <laughs> well, you're getting your ass shot off. It's not a conflict anymore. It's a war. <laughs> On the other side of the world. <laughs> right, right. On the other side of the world. Yeah. And I, I thank God the American people don't, don't have to go through that. I, oh. do, you, do you think that is part of the reason that Korea was not and is not talked about as much is just yeah. that politically, you know, coming right off of World War II, they, the establishment knew that the American people did not want they another They didn't want it. They, they didn't tell them. They didn't tell them about that. They're still getting over World War II, so they didn't want to tell them that, hey, we got your kids into another one. You're right. And just like Vietnam. Well, there's, there's been so many fortunes made out of World War II. By people writing books mm. that don't have one iota of what they're talking about, yeah. <laughs> and, but but they they make it sound as though they're right there and they've got a rifle and they're firing with you, but it's not like that. Yeah. Do Do you think that there are some misconceptions about the war that have come out in these books and reports? They could have had, that could have made them have a uh, misconception because they dramatize all, they dramatize almost everything. Mm. I, I doubt, I doubt that, that you, well, I, I doubt that you could find a book that is written that you can't go in there and you'll, you, you'll either find somebody in there writing that that you know about. Yeah. Now, I, I like McDowell. I mean, I'm an early, early American history guy. I like Waddell, and I read his books, and they're, they become, uh, they're more accurate than any I have ever read from 1776 on. Yeah. Is there a, it's interesting you mentioned that, and it's good to hear that you, you've never been disrespected ever since you came back from the war. In the, in the same way that, say, the Vietnam veterans were disrespected broadly when they came back. But there is this kind of a strange procession here. The World War II veterans, perhaps the most celebrated veterans in the history of our country. Well, they're the greatest generation. Greatest generation. Uh, then the Vietnam veterans, completely disrespected, probably the most disrespected of any veterans in our country. And there's the, the Korean veterans right in the middle, mostly ignored mostly forgotten about. It's a strange progression there. I was uh, fresh out of Korea, and then the Vietnam War started. I had two children by that time, so, and I'd already spent a tour in Europe and a tour in Korea, so I wasn't worried about being drafted. Uh, so I enrolled in school, I was going to school. But in the last 10 years, I've been involved with talking and counseling and being with the Vietnam people. And the Vietnam people didn't do anything wrong. They came back here and our own people spat on them. Yep. They, they didn't deserve that. I, I thought maybe, you know, in the early, early part, I thought, well, they're just a bunch, just a bunch of dope heads. Yeah. No. But that's not true. No. That's not true. 
they deserve far better than what they receive. Well, there was this, this group that called them the baby killers, and uh, of course, yeah. then the press got it, and it was strictly political. Why do you think that shift occurred? Just the craziness of the 60s and the Cultural Revolution? Maybe just sell more papers. Yeah. Well, it goes back to stamping out communism. Just about every war that we've had goes to stamping out communism. In Korea, it was one more political. It was communism versus freedom. Yeah. So uh, we want out, and communism is not there. However, it is above the 38th parallel. Now, the communists in Russia is gone. Uh, I don't know how long it'll take before China sinks. Right. As long as she's got us to make money off of, I don't think she'll sink. They're right. We're, we're funding the regime at this point, right? Yeah. I'll put it this way, uh, the Amer America is keeping communi communist China going. Yeah, right, right. I mean, they produce all of our goods, they buy up all of our debt. That's right. If we quit buying Chinese goods in one year, there wouldn't be any China. Yeah. <laughs> Although we wouldn't have any goods, I guess, at yeah, that we point. We wouldn't have anything. <laughs> well, do you have any specific questions you want to ask me? Uh, yes, uh, there, I, I would like to ask about your specific uh, experiences of the war. I mean, for instance, you, you Adele, were a medic. So, how, you know, how, how does that differ? How does the experience of going out as a medic differ from... Well, see, know, World War II and then Korea, the medic was a, a part of the, the company, the platoon. Well, today, their guys are trained to be their own medics and everything else, but like I say, I was trained as a medic for, in a rifle company. Well, it does, it does seem like a, it's, a, it's got to be an emotionally very taxing job, too, if you're just yeah. constantly yeah. on the line there with people yeah. who have been injured, you know, who are at death's door, perhaps. See, I beg for it. When I get in the Army, I've I done everything. They first, first, they put me into a medical unit, then as an ambulance driver, and then as a medic, and I've done everything in my power. And finally, get over, she got me to Japan, and I finally wiggled my way to go to Korea. Yeah. Never did figure a way to get back. Yeah. What what but was it? it but it was uh, you went from seventeen to forty overnight. You yeah. grew up overnight. Yeah. As my daughter asked me that. She says, "What's it like?" I said, "Well, you went from a, a boy to a man overnight. The minute you heard that first bullet, you you were a man." Did you did you ever regret it? Did you ever think, you know, maybe I should have stuck around not, the US Not of in a heartbeat. I'd go and if they would take me in for another one, I'd go in a heartbeat. Uh, I mentioned in my, I think part of my first remarks uh, about the bazooka. In that same, in that same battle, uh, of course I was, I was, uh, the company leader at that time. How old were you then? How old was I? I don't know. When you got the something. How old are you now? Let's don't talk about age. <laughs> 29. No, yeah. I'm 88. I'm one on 88, so no. I was just a kid. Wow. We had kids younger than me. And so when, when after I initially came 
a little bit out of the adamant that I had gone through. Uh, they had uh, they had the, the platoon leaders and 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 the boys, including my medic, all stacked up like wood, dead from that stupid mistake, and. It, it's it's absolutely unbelievable, and but what can you do? Well, what do you do? How how do you recover from seeing that and continue to go on and continue to fight? You either get help and get counseling, or you push it aside for sixty odd years like I did, huh. and do it the hard way. Quit trying to be macho. It it, it it's not. It's not wrong to ask for help. It's absolutely not wrong to ask for help. Uh, I I carry with me, uh, and I probably will until I die. You can't touch me when I'm asleep. Huh? If you want to wake me up, you touch my feet. I I, I this hasn't happened in, in in many many years, but just recently. My wife did that, and, and, and I told her, I said, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. And her feelings, and I, I had to sit her down and tell her why. I said, I could have hurt you really bad. You can't do that. Yeah. So, and, of course, my family knows you touch my feet to wake me up. Now, I will carry that until I die. That's in me. That's 70 years later. You yes. still have that reaction. Yeah, I still have that. In, in, the, in the PTSD, you will also take to your grave. You, you don't get rid of that. That never goes away. You can help it. There's no medication for it. Counseling helps. If you go and get a good counselor and let them listen to you and explain... And, and when I first started the council, the lady sat down and she says, uh, I'm not going to keep you for a few minutes because I want you to go home and I want you to take a, 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 a yellow tablet and I want you to write down the one thing that you're most upset about. Well, I did that and, 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 and uh, while I was doing that, it dawned on me that those people are dead. Huh. Those people probably died 30 years ago. The people that you were angry at? Yes, before, yeah. yes. And here I am carrying a grudge around wanting to hurt somebody, huh. and they are already dead. Right. So then I go back to the counselor, and she said, and she said uh, well, how did things go? I said, I don't know, but I just had a, a, a great awakening, and I told her, and she was excited about it. Huh. So I, my, my duration with counseling is only four months. Wow. So I learned how to control the anger, uh, and I have not learned how to care to control the emotions. And emotion and anger is right close together. And both of them are dangerous if you can't process them. And I have found a way now that through the PTSD, I can process that 
different than what I did before. How often do you think about it? I don't, I don't ever think about it. It's there. I mean, it's, it's in your brain. It's just there all the time. It's on your brain. It's huh. 24 It's 24 7. It's uh, 365. You, you can't keep from thinking about it. Have, have you had a similar experience? You never forget. Very often you'll hear from people who have traumatic experiences. They'll say, well, time will heal the wounds, and don't worry after time. But what, what you're, and, and perhaps it can improve somewhat, but what you are describing is this war that took place 70 years ago is still with you. Oh, I, I sleep with it, and I, I spend my days with it. It will never leave me. Yeah, number one, uh, uh, and, I, and I believe this firmly, I don't believe God created you to fight wars. I know in the Old Testament, listen, I'm versed. I'm versed with all 66 books. I, I've, I've read them many times and I've preached on them for years and years. You, you can't undo some things once it's happened to you. If I say, I don't like you, there's nothing I can do about it and nothing you, and you can't take it back. Yeah. I can't You've already take said it back. It. Yeah. It's said. The same way with PTSD, you don't know what happened that caused it, and you don't know what, you don't know why you act or react the, like, the way you do. I don't know why I'm hypervigilant. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know why I have a, a, a disease that I'm going to die with, yeah. with PTSD, even though it's not a disease, it's treated like a disease. But there's help that you can reduce it. You can reduce the anxiety. You can reduce the uh the way you act, the way you react, I should say. And uh, so, it, 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 yeah, you, you can't say, uh, I, will, I will go down and I will go to work and I'll bury myself in my work like I did, and I'll forget this mess and it won't, mean, it won't mount to the hill of beans. It don't work like that. You know, you have this very intense experience when you're very, very young and then you get out and you've got your whole career ahead of you and you've got all your work life ahead of you. How does that formative experience shape the way you treat work? I had, I had, my experience with dealing with people were different. I, uh, being my size, my weight, yeah. and I was on the boxing team for a while. I learned that was no way I wanted to earn my living, <laughs> but nevertheless, I stopped probably 200 fights in, in my lifetime. The last fight I stopped, the guy killed the other one, shot him with a, a nine millimeter, three bullets right in his heart, and killed him. And uh, of course, it was self-defense. He had, he had no choice but to do it. So uh, that was on TV, and all of my children called me, and they know me. They say, Dad, no more fights. You can't stop any more fights. Huh. So I had stopped 
I had stopped that fight three times, and blood splattered on me when he shot him. It was a, a fight that just broke out in... Yeah, it, it's stupidity. Stupidity. But you, but you felt an impulse if, if people were... Well, I just need to stop it. It don't need to go any further. I've walked between two people with their knives pulled out. Uh, I didn't feel any danger. I didn't see any danger to it. I didn't feel they would hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> the problem was with each other. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I didn't. I didn't. And, it, of course, I know that was not really intelligent thinking on my part. It's c- courageous or reckless. The line sometimes is a little thin. Yeah. How do, I mean, I, th- I think I know the answer to this, but how do you think the service in the war made you a better man? Made me appreciate uh, life in general. Don't take anything for granted. My father always said, a fair day's work for fair day's pay. Your country needs you, you go. That's the reason I take don't, the oath so serious. Don't stand in line looking for a handout the way this bunch is today. Yeah. That was a line that's, from... That's a bad feature today. We don't have these kids trying to help the country. Yeah. They're out there with their handout thinking, come on, you, you owe me. What the hell do I owe you? Yeah, that's the line from Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yep. Just as they... Uh, talks in 61 began to come about of the ceasefire. Uh, Colonel Kelly called me and battalion commander, and uh, he uh, told me, he said, I want you to go from here back to Fort Benning, Georgia, because we want you to go to officer school. And I uh, thanked him, of course, before I ever left for Korea, I applied for back in those days, I had on-the-job training, and they would train you, and it took like five years of college, mm-hmm. on-the-job training for five years. Well, I applied for that. Well, them being smarter than I was, knew that I was going to get drafted back to Korea. Well, it wasn't two months till I was already in Korea. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I got back, I went down there and they put me right. So I went through that five years of schooling. And and it disappointed him because um, I don't say I did a good job with the company. I did the best I knew how. I was probably as old as anybody in there. And uh, we all got along good. And, And just at that time, was uh, when Truman desegregated uh, uh, the military. And then that all changed while, I, while we was in Korea. But it, it didn't affect anybody in any way. Hmm. I, I don't think that there was any fights broke out or anything. I mean, to my knowledge. Yep. Yeah, that was, not a, that was not a major issue in your experience. It, it was not. It was not because... Listen, I worked with the uh, African-American people all of my life. Yep. So, I mean, I, I'm a country boy. I, they play baseball just like I do, and swimming the same swimming hole I swear them in. Yeah. Hey, 
Yeah. I, don't, I don't look at it the way a lot of people look at it now. Uh, you take a man that won't work for his living, I don't have any respect for him. Right. I don't care what color he is. Right, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, not, not a racial thing, it's a uh, it's character. It's a, a natural thing, a fact, right. a right. fact. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, what, see, when I went in, they took me down to South Carolina, Fort Jackson, out of a bit of a police. <laughs> and uh, I was in the Dixie Division, 31st century, the Dixie Division. So you was in Fort Jackson whenever they desegregated? Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, here, there, I don't know many thousand of us in a field lined up, and I'll never forget it. This rebel bastard walked in the line going, out, out. If you weren't pure white, out, out. Really? Three of my buddies were from Hogersburg, Indian boys. Yeah. Out. Oh, yeah. I know our race. I know that's when I learned what racism was. Wow. I learned it in there because I never knew. The bigger division that I'm hearing from you, Dale, is uh, north and south. North and south. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a North until I was 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> the country ended at the Mason-Dixon. Forget the 38th parallel. We're talking about the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. Yeah. In the Korean War, when we got the, the, the Mexicans, the Puerto Ricans, uh, uh, who all ever was involved in it, uh, when we got them in... Uh, dealing amongst them. They bled and died just like the rest of them. There was really no difference in us. We was, we was there trying to survive. And I'm gonna give you another uh, bit of information about the P PTSD. And, and every GI there, whether he realizes it or not, went through this. When you go into, into that thing, I don't care who you are, you're, you're afraid. You're, you're, you know there's a very good possibility that you're gonna get killed, all right? Then you have, to, you have to get out of that mode and you have to go into survival mode. Hmm. And then it's your job to be vigilant and that's why you're hypervigilant. And, and it's your job to keep yourself safe. If, if you can get behind something, don't be a fool, get behind something. Yeah. If there's a hole to get in, get into a hole. It doesn't matter. Never deep enough either. <laughs> yeah, because the bullet, will, the bullet doesn't see any color, whether you're Mexican or whether you're Puerto Rican or whether you're white, you're dead just the same. And that is probably what kept a lot of them alive that they went into that survival mode. Uh, like you said, the bullet doesn't differentiate its color, race, or creed. Yeah. You know, the, the leadership of the military got in trouble about a year ago. Yeah. Put it this way, they the, put leader, the, the leadership has gone political. It's gotten, and it's gotten very, seems like, radical left. I mean, you're seeing yeah. this. See, leadership is not like when him and I was in. A general was a general, and a captain was a captain. Today, they're all political. They're looking for a way how to advance themselves, and it's strictly political. Do you, do you fear for the national security, and you know, given how politicized the military is? My take on that is we have got a generation 
but half of them don't know whether they're a girl or boy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And the other half don't know which bathroom to use because they don't know whether they're boy or girl. Yeah. Uh, I would think that if we got in a real conflict, the United States would be in trouble. Hmm. Now, they would have to have older people drafted into the military if they're going to ever win, win anything. There, well, it, it is amazing to think you both go into the service at such a young age and immediately you're going overseas. Today, we have a kind of delayed maturation. You're on your parents' health insurance until 26. You don't get a job until later on. You know, maybe you're waiting a year or two after college. There's just a, you don't, you don't move out, you don't get married, you, don't, you just don't grow up. You can't fight a war with people that don't know how to do anything. Yeah, yeah. You do, you do need some kind of uh, hard skills, uh, eagerness to go out. Well, you go into war, and, and if you think those people won't shoot you, you get out there in the open, you'll find out. Right. They will shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> and... and it really puts microaggressions into uh, perspective. You know. They're used to playing these video games and blowing things up. Well, that doesn't work. That won't work. Yeah. You don't get to restart in the in real life. Yeah. Well, I would I wouldn't take anything from my experiences in life, all of it. I've had good experiences. I've had some bad experiences, but sometimes you have to take the good with the bad. I, I, I wouldn't want to go back to Korea. Uh, I wouldn't want to go back to Germany. I have a grandson that's serving in Germany now. He and his family is a bomb holder in, in Germany. I wouldn't want to go back over there. I'm, I'm at home now. Yeah. I'm at home, and, and where I, whether I'm safe or not, I don't know, but I'm home. Right. In, in, in the Korean War is is I'm sure if you sat here for hours and pumped me with questions, I probably could remember a lot that I have not said. But I'm also, uh, my wife says I'm 92 years old, and my mind is not the way it used to be. Seemed so, pretty lucid to me. Yeah. So there, there's where I sit. Uh, I'm happy where I'm at. Mm. Uh, I, I love my neighbors, I love my community. Uh, and now you're sitting here giving a two-hour interview <laughs> about a war 70 years ago, recalling, that's incredible. Yes. Well, God's good. Yeah. God is good. I, I, uh, I don't know how much longer I'm gonna live, but I'm gonna live happy. I'm not gonna go and be looking on the ground, I'm gonna be looking up. <laughs> There's nothing down there for me. No. Do you have any advice? If you had to go back now, talk to that 17-year-old kid who gets his dad's signature to go enlist and say, hey, here's something that I really wish I knew when I was 17, 18 years old. Is there, is there anything you would tell that guy? Well, like I said, I just got out of high school. Graduated in June. In December, I turned 17 and joined up because I was missing out on something. You wouldn't change anything about it? You wouldn't give no. different advice? Wow. No, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't want my kids, uh, my, uh, if I had a son, I wouldn't want him to join the specific idea of going into combat, naturally, no. But, but for you, you yeah. would. But uh, my son or daughter, if they want to go in, learn a trade in the service, better the country, yes, I'm right all for it. I look at life a little bit different, but on the same subject. Um, I, I believe that when my country calls for me, that I should answer. And the uh, oath that I took is perpetual. It never ends. And I believe that I'm patriotic enough that today, if something happened and broke out and I, you would give me the M1 I had, I would stand and fire it until I fell. That's the way I feel about my country. I love my country. And I have no doubt that you would you would be able to fire that gun for a pretty pretty long time. That's an that's an incredible amount of uh, See, this fortitude. It's like he said, if our country called and needed us, we'd go in a heartbeat. Well, my country's been good to me. Yeah. Um, I've lived in freedom all of my life. Nobody's ever told me what I had to do or what I couldn't do. I did basically what I wanted to or what I could afford to do. And I've lived a very happy life. And to me, I have really tried my best to forget the Korean War, uh, which I find is impossible to do that. Yeah. Uh, I uh, didn't have any uh, unusual experiences in Germany. I went to school all the time I was there because I was one of those unfortunate poor kids that didn't get enough education. And then I come home from Korea and I go to school, go to school five more years and then I get done with that, and then I enrolled in college, and so here I am. I tell you, as, as you as you say, you know, if your country called on you today, you'd pick up the same gun. If, if you told me, Michael, to defend you and your country, you've either got to rely on 30-something millennials or a GW and Dale at or around the age of 90, that would not be a difficult choice for me. I would say absolutely... <laughs> GW and, and uh, Dale every day. That, uh, that, that, is, that is some incredible uh, fortitude, guys. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for your patriotism. Thank you for your service. And selfishly, thank you for making the trek to the studio and uh, telling me and telling all of us a little bit about this war that is so often forgotten. Thank you both so much, Dale. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. GW. Thank to you even for the opportunity.